Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Francine Foss, Anish Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Foss is a professor of medicine in the section of medical oncology at the Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Chagpar is associate professor of surgical oncology and director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. And Dr. Gore is director of hematological malignancies at Smilo. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you could submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about pediatric malignancies with Dr. Alyssa Lee. Dr. Lee is a pediatric hematology-oncology fellow at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Anise Chagpar. Alyssa, why don't you start by telling me a little bit about yourself and what it is exactly that you do? So I am a local native, born and raised in Connecticut. Um, And I mean, basically what I do is is work and, you know, enjoy taking care of my patients. So um, as you said, I'm a pediatric oncology, hematology oncology fellow. Um, And what that consists of is taking care of patients in our clinic as well as on our floors that get admitted um, for any sorts of reasons, whether it's for treatment, whether it's for fever. And then I also on the side participate in some research programs. um, And I'm doing some clinical uh, work with some mentors over at Yale. So my, my Time's pretty full. Well, that's great. So tell me a little bit more about what exactly pediatric hematology oncology is. I mean, I understand that it's working with kids, but what what kinds of cancers do these kids present with? So hematology oncology actually encompasses a lot of different um a lot of different illnesses and diagnoses. Um, so in terms of hematology, hematology is stuff to deal with blood. So we see patients with anything from anemia to problems with their platelets, whether they have problems with bleeding or bruising. And then oncology is what we um, deal, uh, deal with quite a bit, and that's cancer. Um, so the most common cancer that we see is something called acute lymphoblastic leukemia, um, which in short is ALL. So um, in terms of presenting, patients can present with the common cold or, or look like they have the common cold, having maybe a fever and some fatigue. They could have body aches. Um, and it's acute and onset, unfortunately, because a lot of the times when patients come in, parents will say, well, could we caught this earlier? Um, but unfortunately, as I said, it's acute, so it comes on pretty suddenly. Sometimes patients might be pale. Some patients might have bleeding problems. And that's one of the biggest diagnoses we see. Um, We see a whole range of other diagnoses um, from other sorts of leukemias, and what leukemias are is cancers of the blood. But then we also see more what we call solid tumors, which are um, what more people think of as masses, Um, and these can range anywhere from a pediatric diagnosis such as neuroblastoma, um, that's something common in the younger patients, to um, cancers that you actually see in adults similarly, Um, some stuff like sarcomas, um, brain tumors. So we see a whole different number of, of diagnoses. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. One thing that struck me as you were describing the most common kind of pediatric cancer, ALL, is that it can present with 
symptoms that seem like the common cold. A little bit of cough, a little bit of fever, you look a little bit pale. Alyssa, I can imagine if I was listening to this show going, geez, you know, it's snowing outside. My kid's got a cold, but is it a cold or is it ALL? I mean, that's going to freak a lot of people out. How can you tell the difference if you're a parent listening to this show? Whether your kid, I mean, should everybody be worried about their kid having ALL? Definitely not. So what's common is common. Most kids, when they get sick, are going to have a cold. Um, These kids sometimes can start out looking like they have the cold, but then they get sick much faster. As I said, sometimes patients... So basically what leukemia is, is it's a cancer of the white blood cell. Um, And when that happens, one of the white blood cells decides that it's not going to die. All of our blood cells have some sort of mechanism that tells them when to die. These cancer cells decide not to die, and they start dividing. Um, And as they divide, they sort of fill up your your blood factory called your bone marrow. Um, And when that happens, it pushes out regular cells. So patients start not making enough red blood cells, which are the cells that carry um, oxygen throughout your um, body, or platelets, which are the cells that help you clot. So then patients that have leukemia, a lot of times they have, they look more pale, um, they might have abnormal bleeding, sometimes from their nose, from their gums, um, and have bruises as well. So, but common things being common, um, if a child has kind of a cough running nose, that's going to be a cold. These, our patients typically present with very high fevers as well, um, and they just look very pale, very run down. But, you know, if a parent is ever concerned, then they should definitely call their doctor, bring their, their child into to see their pediatrician. So if a cold isn't acting just like a cold, if it's, if it's worse, if it's a high fever, if your kid starts getting bloody noses, um, that's a signal that you need to worry. And looking pale and just not feeling right. But as I said, common things being common, it's going to be a cold. As I said, it is the most common pediatric cancer. Um, but knock on wood, pediatric cancers really aren't that common. Um, so the majority of patient, p- kids who are going to get sick, it's not going to be anything to worry about like leukemia. So how common are pediatric cancers? Like how many children would end up getting a, a cancer? I don't have exact numbers for you on that. I apologize. But, but certainly but... not as common as many of the cancers that we think about, like breast cancer, right. lung so, cancer. Pediatric cancers must be far less common than They're far less common, um, much less common. So, you know, unfortunately, as you um, struck on colon cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, they're pretty common in the general adult population, um, whereas pediatric cancers really aren't. I mean, you can go to some schools out in the community and they'll never have a a kid who is seen by us or one of the neighboring um you know hospitals whereas i think all of us know somebody who has had breast cancer who has had colon cancer i mean i'm lucky to say growing up i didn't know anybody with a pediatric cancer and i think a lot of people can actually say that but i i find that when kids do have cancer it does impact a lot of people it impacts communities so I think, unfortunately, when pe- when families or communities find out about um, a, a kid having cancer in the community, it gets them a little more stressed and worried about their own kid. But as I said, luckily, it's it's not incredibly common. Yeah. But if if a 
parent believes or is concerned that there's something wrong with their child, they need to bring their child to their pediatrician and discuss it definitely. Yeah, it sure does make a difference um, when a kid has cancer and you know that kid. Right. And I, I've uh, I've talked on this show before about uh, a very a very close friend of mine whose uh, whose child ended up with leukemia, mm-hmm. um, and you know, amazingly, did relatively well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it still uh, was heartbreaking to right. to think about this kid with cancer. So let's talk about that. I mean, when we think about pediatric cancers, I, I think everyone would agree that it is absolutely one of the most devastating things mm-hmm. that we hear about because um, no child um, right. should get cancer. Um, and even though it's rare, some do. Mm-hmm. But how do they do with that diagnosis? Is this, is the prognosis really dismal? So it really, unfortunately, it, it, it depends. So, um, for instance, acute standard risk acute lymphoblastic leukemia, as I said, which is their most common, we have cure rates that are 90 to 95%. So obviously a diagnosis of any sort of cancer is going to be devastating to the family, to the child, even to us as doctors. I mean, it's always so hard to go in because you know that they're you're going to change their life by just telling them the diagnosis, you know, regardless of the outcome, because it's going to be something that they're going to live with. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other cancers that their prognoses aren't as good. Um, you know, some more solid tumors that have metastasized throughout your body, um, which means spreading throughout your body. You know, sometimes their prognoses are 35%. There are some brain tumors um, that prognoses are in the 10s and 20s. So it really depends. But I think the general theme is it is it's absolutely devastating. Um when when patients and families hear this diagnosis because it does it throws a wrench in everything and your plans and your kids schooling and and uh you know parents work and just everything but you know for the majority of patients and families they they completely rise above it i, I always find it so amazing with the really little kids even if they have very aggressive therapy um Sometimes you can't even tell that they're being, you know, they're just being kids. They don't know that they're sick. Um, And I feel like that's always a huge comfort for the families. Um, But so many people, they just rise above it. And, you know, it's devastating at first, but then you do what you have to do to get through it and be there for your kid. Yeah. So, yeah, I I, I keep thinking back to this uh, one pediatric patient that I I know personally, uh, who who exactly that you know he's running around and he's playing sports and mm-hmm. he has no hair mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> um, but but he's he's being he's being a kid what's the long-term impact I mean it's great that especially in ALL and let's just focus on that for for the moment mm-hmm. just because it is the most common mm-hmm. and it is such a blessing that um, it has such high cure rates. Right, as for standard risk. I mean, for sometimes st- for higher risk, it might be a little lower. But yeah, for standard risk. For standard ex- risk. Exactly. Um, and, and that's really due to chemotherapy in mm-hmm. large part, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what is the impact of kids getting chemotherapy long term? I mean, does this have... I mean, we've all heard about chemo brain. I mean, Mm -hmm. does this affect cognitive function um, in adulthood? Do these kids go on to, you know, 
live long, healthy, happy, productive lives? Do they go to college? Do they do well in school? I mean, tell us a little bit more about the ramifications of the treatment on their long-term health and their long-term prognosis. Well, that's actually a great question because, you know, um, our treatments are great, but unfortunately, everything that has a positive also has a negative. So the chemotherapy that we use affects some good cells too and can cause some long-term problems. Um, You know, you you talked about cognitive. Sometimes patients can have kind of a, a little bit of a decrease in their IQ. Um, we unfortunately with leukemia, it can spread to your spinal fluid. So we have to do spinal taps and give, um, which you take out some of the spinal fluid to make sure that there's no cancer cells in there. And then we also give chemotherapy. Um, and it's thought that that could po- potentially affect um, some cognition, but not huge amounts. Um, we do at Yale and throughout the country, we have clinics, um, survivorship clinics. The one that we have over at Yale. Is is our heroes clinic. Um, so when patients are done with their therapy, they still follow up with their primary oncologist, but then they also follow up with the heroes clinic about once a year um, and monitor any sort of long-term effects that patients can have. Some of the medications that we give can sometimes cause a neuropathy, some numbness and tingling in the toes, some problems walking. And if we're able to pick that up, patients can go for physical therapy. Um, we have a neuropsychologist actually Actually, that works in our clinic and is able to do some screening. Um, and if there's any problems that are picked up, we're able to get people the appropriate care that they need. Um, overall, patients end up having productive lives. Um, I have a wonderful patient who's applying, you know, for colleges soon. So, and I, she wants to be a pediatric oncologist, and I don't think there's going to be anything that stops her. I think she's an intelligent girl and she's doing well in school. And I think that's a great thing thing for for us that we're making you know we're, we're helping beat this disease and then these kids do go on and, and lead good productive lives that's awesome Alyssa we're going to pick up on this conversation and talk more about solid tumors um, after we take a short break for a medical minute please stay tuned to learn more information about pediatric cancers with Dr. Alyssa Lee this year over 200,000 Americans will be diagnosed with lung cancer More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven, to test innovative new treatments for lung cancer. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial at Yale aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Alyssa Lee. We're talking about pediatric malignancies, one of those devastating diagnoses when kids get cancer. Now, we talked before the break about ALL, which is the most frequently diagnosed pediatric cancer, where actually the 
prognosis, the treatments are really effective, 95%. Um, that's awesome. But Alyssa, let's talk a little bit more about solid cancers, uh, where I understand the prognosis is a little bit more grim. So what's the most common solid cancer for kids? So it really ranges with age. And I mean, the most common solid cancer that anybody can think of is possibly a brain tumor. Um, There are so many different types of brain tumors, however, some are benign, some are malignant. So it's hard to say which is the most common. Um, In terms of other solid tumors, age ranges are pretty important um, when thinking about that. With younger children, One common cancer that we see is something called a Wilms tumor. Um, And the Wilms tumor is commonly picked up by, um, you'll hear a mom or a grandma or somebody bathing their child and actually feeling a mass in in their child's belly. And the the children actually look pretty good, um, but the parent feels something abnormal that's not there. And what Wilms tumor is, it's a tumor that arises from the kidney. We have very good treatments for Wilms tumor as well if it's not metastatic, so if it's just a primary tumor. um, We actually are able to treat our patients outpatient, um, and patients do very well. I have patients who have completed therapy and are, you know, back in school and really enjoying playing and being back to kids. Um, So so with Wilms tumor, is that treated again with chemotherapy, Mm -hmm. or is it... I mean, because it arises from a kidney, like a solid organ, does that involve surgery, radiation? How how does that all play? Are there multiple disciplines treating that tumor? So um, with solid tumors, there normally are multiple disciplines. For Wilms tumor, um, if it's just one at a primary site, surgery is a big component of it. Um, So after a biopsy, in order to figure out what the tumor is, if they're able to remove the tumor, then the surgeons will do that. Um, And that sometimes comes at the cost of a child losing one kidney, but it's okay because people can live with one one functioning kidney. Um, And then they do get chemotherapy. Depending on the tumor um, or the type of tumor and how it's spread, some tumors um, we use radiotherapy for. Um, So one of the more common tumors in um, adolescence is a soft tissue sarcoma. So some sarcomas are treated with radiation, um, and that is targeted at where the primary site is. Sometimes if you can't really get the whole tumor out, radiation is a component of therapy along with chemotherapy. So it really is a multidisciplinary um, way of treating these patients. And we work together very closely with our surgeons, with our radiation um, therapists and oncologists. So um, really making sure that we're treating the patient appropriately. We actually meet once a week and do a tumor board um, and discuss any new cases that we have um, and discuss any cases that we might have questions on. Um, So it's a good way of just getting everybody together um, and coming up with the most appropriate management for the patient. So just to clarify, um, because we were talking about Wilms tumor, and then Mm -hmm. we also talked a little bit about sarcomas. Mm -hmm. Those are two different entities, right? Yes. So 
tell us a little bit about how they're different Mm -hmm. and about their prognosis. So is one uh, got a better prognosis than the other or both uh, dismal? How do they compare to ALL, for example, which is um, very treatable? You know, we so we do have good treatments for all all sorts of tumors. It's hard to say which one's more treatable than the other because you also have to think about stages. Um, so any disease that hasn't metastasized is more treatable than something that has. So a stage one non-metastatic Wilms, we have very good survival rates into the like the 80s. Um, and same with some sarcomas as well. It's unfortunately when cancer spread that it's harder to deal with and harder to manage. But we still do have, you know, we we have good outcomes um, for all of our diagnoses. Um, some, unfortunately, are worse than others. Um, and as I said, when there's metastasis, that's unfortunately when the outcomes start to drop off a little. Um, but the hopeful thing is we're part of clinical trials and um, looking at the best new treatments coming up for patients. You know, for a lot of people, and and I treat the adult population, um, a lot of people sometimes still think of clinical trials as human experimentation, Mm -hmm. and particularly for kids, because um, many parents uh, are very protective Mm -hmm. uh, of their children. Do you find that they are more hesitant to participate in clinical trials because they don't want their child to be a, quote, guinea pig? Or do you find that parents are actually very enthusiastic about clinical trials because, number one, there aren't very many children who get these diagnoses, and so this is the only way to advance the field. And number two, this is a a potential option for their child to get kind of tomorrow's therapies today. Right. Um, So... As we keep saying, pediatric cancers are rare. Um, So we're part of at Yale something called the Children's Oncology Group, which is an international consortium of many different hospitals um, and their patients. So what we do is we follow the Children's Oncology Group protocols. When there's an open study, meaning a study using kind of the backbone of what's the standard care, but looking at a new medication or different dose modifications that have kind of passed through phase one, phase two clinical trials, then we're able to say, we know there's some safety behind it, but then we're able to invite our patients to enroll in these studies. Um, For instance, there is one study that was open recently um, for a rhabdomyosarcoma, and it used an antibody therapy. So it was using the same exact background of the medications that a patient would get if they were diagnosed with um, rhabdomyosarcoma, but then they were given this extra medication to see if outcomes changed. So I think when you talk to parents about this, some parents are very, you know, they get very excited about it and think, wow, maybe this is this is really going to change the outcome because we know what the outcomes are with this backbone, but we're hoping that through the trials, I mean, sometimes they're based on adult trials and we know that there's been some efficacy with that. So through um, this new medication, there's some promise that our outcomes are going to get better. There are some parents that don't want to be a part of that, but I'd say the majority of parents, if we offer them to be part of one of these open studies, they they jump at the opportunity because, you know, this is something that can potentially help 
with that outcome even that much more. Mm. Um, and then also, as I said, since we are doing better with our um, treatments and outcomes, there are other studies that we're doing kind of the, to back up on some therapies to try to limit some of the long-term outcomes that some of our patients are at risk for. But overall, as I said, we've had really good response rates. Um, if there's a patient that has a tumor that's not responding, sometimes we'll also send patients out to other places that have more phase one, um, phase two trials. But the majority of our patients, if they're offered the children's oncology group trials, they'll um, they'll actually agree to it. Yeah. I think the nice thing about these cooperative group trials, um, like the children's oncology group, is that you're really looking at a national and international mm-hmm. consortium. So this is the world's greatest scientists and and right. physicians who are really putting their bet on mm-hmm. um, the next the next great therapy. Right. Can you tell us some maybe recent studies that have transformed um, the way that you treat pediatric cancers that have arisen from clinical trials, like? How, how have clinical trials impacted how you treat patients? Well, as I said, they kind of, with each clinical trial that we use, they see if the new medication that's been used or the new um, decrease in medication, if that has any change in the outcomes. And if that does, then that ends up getting changed as the standard of care. Um, as I said, uh, with rhabdomyosarcoma, they're looking at an antibody therapy for neuroblastoma, which is another cancer that younger children get. There was a study looking at anti- antibody therapy, and now kids are routinely getting antibody therapy because it was shown to be efficacious. Um, so the clinical trials really are helping um, with moving pediatric oncology even further ahead. Um, And I think that's why survival rates have improved dramatically over the past 20, 30 years. Yeah. I I mean, it's the same thing uh, in in breast cancer, which I treat, where we're really finding that, you know, clinical trials are are giving people what is going to become standard of care tomorrow, giving it to them sooner, um, because we really have found that we've really moved the field so much further Mm -hmm. down the pike um, with clinical trials that then become standard of care. And so you keep incrementally um, bettering, uh, bettering therapy. Tell me a little bit more about some of the clinical trials that look at limiting toxicity, because we talked before the break about the concerns that I think many patients and certainly many parents may have. I mean, certainly if I ever had a child who had cancer who had to get chemotherapy or or, or any kind of therapy, mm-hmm. I would be very concerned about long-term outcomes. Right. And I was thrilled to hear the story of the patient of yours who it, it wants to be a pediatric oncologist. Right. Um, so tell me a little bit more about uh, some of those studies, studies that might be looking at neuroprotection or or protecting their heart and so on Mm -hmm. so that they really can live long and healthy, productive lives. Well, for instance, to go back in time, a lot of the times in the past, leukemia was treated um, 
if if you had leukemia in your spinal fluid or if it was high risk, it was treated with cranial spinal radiation. And that actually proved to really affect people neurocognitively. Um, and we've actually since backed away from that. We use um, intrathecal chemotherapy, which is just the chemotherapy into the spinal fluid. Um, so I think the whole thing behind some of these cr- clinical trials is, as you said, to decrease long-term effects, whether it's decreasing um, dose or getting rid of certain medications. Um, for instance, there's one medication that can cause some heart toxicity. So some studies look at, can we decrease the amount of dose that we're getting with that? Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is the most common lymphoma, are yeah, most common lymphoma that we see in pediatrics. Um, a while back, it, it arises in your chest and your mediastinum. And a while back, a lot of young women were getting radiation um, to their chest. And this was leading to a, a huge number of people ending up getting breast cancer later on in, in life. And now they have studies looking at how effective is our chemotherapy. And if it's effective enough, after a few cycles of chemotherapy, we're eliminating radiation from these um, patients and eliminating that increased risk factor for breast cancer because it's pretty, you know, the late effects are can be traumatic, but unfortunately, one of the late effects of getting chemotherapy is getting a secondary cancer in the future. So that's also one of the things that people have been looking at as well to try to get these patients cured and to have them live productive lifestyles. Yeah, you know, when you talk about long-term effects in second cancers, I I go back to thinking about the HEROES clinic that Mm -hmm. you were mentioning, the survivorship clinic for pediatric patients at Yale. And just in our last minute, um, can you kind of tell us, do those pediatric patients who have been cancer survivors need additional screening for cancer? Mm -hmm. Um, So depending on what sort of therapy they get, they get different sort of screening. Um, Sometimes one of the chemotherapies can cause problems or cancers in your bladder. So we check their... um, we check their urine. Sometimes um, they are at increased risk for breast cancer, so we do mammograms and MRIs. But it is, it's definitely looking at the patient and depending on what the patient is, and it's very tailored to them. Dr. Alyssa Lee is a pediatric hematology oncology fellow at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program. And we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.